Welcome to the latest edition of the Crossroads Podcast. Joining me today is James Wright, Head of Renewables, Clean Energy, and Sustainability for CIBC in the U.S. James, welcome to today's program. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So Mr. Wright joins us today against the backdrop of the Biden administration pushing for the new Green Deal as one of the linchpins to his campaign. Whether this starts to be realized in the form of a big infrastructure spending bill or not, there is no doubt that alternative energy development, ranging from offshore energy to green hydrogen and onto carbon capture, are and will be major economic drivers as the U.S. and states push to accelerate the pace of uh, carbon emissions reduction. Towards that aim, earlier this week, the U.S. Department of Energy launched a $75 million grid storage launch pad in Washington state designed to develop and deploy long-duration, low-cost grid energy storage. To that end, James, can you start by outlining the benefits of this project and how it can benefit the battery storage space, and then outline what some of the challenges are in the space today? Absolutely. So I think it's a very positive signal for how the new administration is already leaning into these technologies that we'll be talking about on the pod today. The launch pad's really being conceived from my perspective as sort of an incubator for testing and research of these emerging battery solutions as they head towards larger scale commercialization. Um, it's really that simple from from what we've been reading. Uh, but look, taking a step back, why is that? I think the bigger picture here on the battery storage side is that it's going to be a really important uh, piece of the pie to address the intermittent dispatch problem we have with renewables. And we're seeing this more and more as renewables penetrate the grid deeper. So, you know, folks may have heard about the famous California dot curve as one exemplar of that. From my perspective, the financing markets are now much more tuned to why these storage assets will be an important piece of the puzzle with batteries being the sort of hallowed solution here to enable uh, that generation fleet to really take off on the renewable side. I think the main challenge here at the moment is really the, the range of technical solutions that are out there. So they've each got their own potential usage case, varying levels of deployment track record, and, th- and that's kind of where the, the crux of the challenge lies. Just to delve a little deeper into that for a second, I think it's worth spending a minute on, you know, there's very broadly two buckets of energy storage approaches out there. The first are what I sort of think of as the physical or kinetic solutions, including pumped hydro, compressed air storage, gravity storage. And then there's a whole second bucket of chemical battery solutions like lithium ion, lithium metal, uh, flow batteries, even NICAD and lead. So although many of the fundamental base technologies here have been known for a long time, um, you know, I think Sony I think it was Sony who first commercialized the lithium-ion battery about 30 years ago now. There's not a lot of deployment or operating data at grid scale for these new usage cases. So depending on the particular market, there's a range of, of what I think of as revenue routes for these technologies, including acting as capacity providers, provision of ancillary services, frequency response, uh, or even arbitrage plays. So um, that, that's the that's the main challenge I see from the technology side. Uh, it's also highly fragmented in terms of the OEMs compared with the wind and solar sector, where we're used to seeing a few handful of very well-known turbine, panel, inverter manufacturers. On the storage side, there's really many, many handfuls of providers out there. Why don't we start talking about technology that's there today and currently just starting to emerge in the U.S. Uh, in the form of offshore wind. And then let's move to some of these uh, newer technologies that are coming up, carbon capture as well as green hydrogen. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I love talking about offshore wind, John. It's um, I like reminding people as an Englishman, it's it's old world technology that's coming to the new world. Um, We've, we've had these these turbines deployed at scale now back in Europe for going on 25 years, and there's an entire 
industry built around their infrastructure. You know, unsurprisingly, therefore, when we think about the US, we're seeing the major European players dominating the investment landscape. Um, Equinor, Orsted, Avangrid, Shell, BP, EDPR, ONG, those are the, the key ones. Um, the continual evolution of the technology is truly remarkable, though. We've gone from about you know, less than one megawatt machines uh, to now having 12 megawatt plus machines that are going to be talked about on the East Coast. These are 300 meter high installations. So just huge, you know, huge pieces of infrastructure allowing for very high capacity factors, um, pretty competitive levelized cost of energy on the East Coast that will feed quite a lot of base load into markets like PJM. I think the major challenge will be a couple of things. Firstly, the logistics supply chain for building and operating these projects. Um, there's a lot that goes behind that. We have some structural challenges in the US through things like the Jones Act that will need to be worked through on the vessel side, as well as the appropriate planning for port and transmission infrastructure for where these projects will interconnect to the grid. A second thing I'd just highlight with offshore wind would be on the financing side, there are a couple of, there are some questions around just the capacity within the tax equity market. The new 30% ITC for offshore wind is certainly helpful, but it means that some of those pipeline projects are going to really be looking to feed 2 billion plus of tax equity each into the market when they come online, which is really significant if you think about a market that up until now has been about 12 billion a year of, of total tax equity demand. So those are, those are a couple of things on offshore wind. Um, if we go then onto the other technologies you touched on, I think CCUS is is really where we're getting into what I think about as the technologies of tomorrow. So carbon capture and sequestration. This one is really addressing the other side of the climate coin, if you like. Renewables are clearly crucial for reducing the carbon intensity of the electricity sector. But we've also got to adopt solutions that remove the unavoidable emissions from other sectors that will inhibit us from getting to those you know, 2050 net zero goals, which which is really where the science is telling us we need to be to avoid catastrophe. So scrubbing or sequestering that CO2 is, is what we're talking about here. Um, the base technology for some of those solutions is very well known. For example, injecting CO2 into wells for enhanced oil recovery. That's been done for a long time in, in places like the Permian. Uh, newer, more radical applications such as uh, direct air capture, where you know, we can literally scrub the CO2 from the air at scale. These could be potentially game-changing, but they are untested at scale. Um, I think the typical investors we're going to see here will be, in the first instance, midstream, downstream oil and gas companies, where they really have experience dealing with the molecules, if you like, um, fundamentally supportive end usage cases for the CO2. And they've also, most importantly, got their own net zero emission goals to strive towards. The, the broader CCUS theme also represents interesting net zero avenues for sectors that have thus far been pretty untouched actually by the energy transition. So if you think about other significant emitters within heavy industry, um, one really good example is concrete production, uh, where there are solutions out there now to inject that CO2 into the concrete in the manufacturing process and also improve its curing time as, as a result. So I think CCUS is going to be a really big one, and we're already seeing some interesting uh, projects coming through on the US side. The last one that you mentioned, hydrogen. So this feels in many respects like, to me, this uh, one of those potential holy grail solutions for the sector that 
have have uh, for parts of the sector that have been te- have had technical barriers to the to the energy transition. So, for example, the tra- the transportation space. Whilst EVs are really a game changer for the car market, there are issues with batteries as a potential solution for trucking and freight rail in terms of energy density, uh, battery weight, and just the logistics around you know the, a sort of national charging infrastructure, if you like, at that sort of scale. So hydrogen fuel cells have been seen as a real option for long distance trucking, for example, where uh, existing refueling infrastructure is really designed to handle those molecules, not really electrons today. And look, there are many potential paths to this hydrogen we're talking about. Um, uh, there's different colors, if you like, that's attributed to it. So you've got brown hydrogen, gray hydrogen, blue hydrogen, but truly green hydrogen is where it's being produced from renewable powered electrolysis. And that's that's what folks are really focused on at the moment. Europe's currently leading the US here. Um, significant funding coming from the EU, as well as emerging regulatory frameworks to be supportive there. But it's already been identified by the folks within the Biden administration as being a key piece of the climate agenda. So I think that's the uh, the, the, the sort of medium, medium-term goal we're heading towards. Terrific. Thanks for that. So let's go to how you bank these technologies. You know, as you pointed out, they're all at various stages of development, some proven, some unproven from your perspective as uh, as a banker in this industry, it'd be nice to get some thoughts about you know how yourself and your peers need to adapt to the development of these different technologies from a project finance perspective. Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, it's sort of it's funny because speed of change is always a real challenge in the project finance space. Um, you know, I've, I've been doing this for twenty plus years, and it's it's a sector that sometimes feels like you're steering an oil tanker. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't always do well with speed of change. I think wherever we can, it's helpful to be able to draw a line between these emerging technologies and known sort of existing areas of the project finance market. So, for example, from a technology perspective, offshore wind in the U.S. will obviously leverage heavily off European contractual and financing structures, as we just talked about. So, there's a clear line that can be drawn there between the U.S. deals we'll see and the, and the European deals that have been done. For areas like CCUS, I think a line can also be drawn from uh, midstream oil and gas financing. Um, Batteries are a bit more of a challenge in that respect, again, because there's no obvious sort of origin story, if you like, within the project finance market. And because of that sort of disparate range of revenue cases that are out there, that that's part of the challenge I think we see on the battery side. Solar plus storage could be a, a bridge to that, and we're seeing a lot more of that coming through. But project finance is really fundamentally about risk allocation, and I'm I'm pretty confident that supporting financing structures will continue to evolve in that space. I'd also just note I think it's worth making the comment that typically project finance lenders, you know, they want to see deployment at commercial scale, right, before technologies thought to be ready for prime time from a senior secure lending perspective, and. You know, it's it's worth remembering that the majority of the project finance lenders issue, you know, L plus two hundred or below paper for what they think of as a commensurate risk profile. So, um, it's it, it's really about risk allocation from that perspective. Um, and just last quick comment on that. You know, typically it'll also I think be the larger, better capitalized sponsors that will be best placed to help spearhead these new technologies within the project finance market. There's obviously an inherent comfort factor there as a lender. Plus, they will have the balance sheet to help those risk allocation exercises. And that's not to say there's not an important role for smaller developers. They're crucial to this. But there's the overall equity story will be an important piece of the puzzle, for sure. Well, you kind of raise an interesting point that I'd like to explore a little bit here. 
let's just go back to to carbon capture for a second, where we talked about the midstream companies being more equipped to uh, develop this market. Obviously, as you've observed in others, a lot of deal flow has uh, gone into midstream, if you will, in uh, 2017, 2018, 2019 you know, conventional MLP structures trading into big infrastructure funds. Do you foresee or are you already observing that because of the carbon emission reduction issue that's overhanging with them, that they're starting to ask about this kind of development capital from their lenders? Are you getting that sense yet or are we still a little too early? Yeah, I think we're a little a little early on the, what what you're coining as development capital, John. I think we're certainly seeing we're certainly seeing one or two of the deals in the US with those some of those midstream players coming towards start of construction. I think shovels are going in the ground, possibly on one or two of those this year. I think development capital is going to be a much broader discussion. I think once the sector's got a bit of runway under its belt, but yeah, look, I think certainly on the construction side, we're going to see a few of those come to the market this year. And then, you know, from what I'm hearing and seeing, it's really going to take off much more in 22 and 23. So we're really we're really thinking about this much more through the medium and long term from the financing perspective. What kind of financing structures work on projects like these versus uh, conventional renewable assets? I can't believe I'm using the term conventional here. <laughs> it, it is what it is. What different financing structures are we seeing here? Yeah, no, it's funny, isn't it? Because when we have these conversations, solar and wind feels a bit boring now. But uh, <laughs> but it's it's really hard to generalize there. It's it's fair to anticipate that you know outside of offshore wind, many of these newer technologies that we're sort of touching on today won't necessarily benefit from you know the 20, 25 year plus bus bar type of PPA structures that we've all been used to seeing in the more conventional wind and solar spaces. Those have really been the kind of anchor of what's got these kind of gigawatts and gigawatts of financing done in the in the solar and wind space. There will be varying elements of market and price risk depending on the technology and its end market market use use case. So again, the project finance market does have precedent financing technology to address volume and price risk within deals. Um, We've seen that historically in sectors like conventional gas power markets and and downstream pet chem markets. I think ultimately those financing structures allow sponsors to get to you know an acceptable sort of debt to total cap, if you like, in terms of upfront leverage to get a closing equity case on a deal, but then appropriately allocate that downside performance risk back to the sponsor post-construction i.e. it's equity that really kind of will probably need to bear the majority of that end market risk as these technologies get going. And again, it's a little bit like PF 101 from that perspective. Who's who's the party best place to absorb those risks? And, and in many respects, on the back end, it's going to be equity versus debt, I think, in the early days. With costs being high, let's um, talk about the current tax regime for these projects. Getting back to the broader issue of the Biden administration, whether any help uh, is coming from the administration as we sort of plot out what the infrastructure bill might look like in the coming months. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's really it's really a bit still to be determined. It's obviously very early days in the new administration. Um, you know, the infrastructure spending bill negotiations are really just kicking off. We've got to see how those play out. I think the recent offshore wind tax credits are very meaningful, um, you know, shot in the arm for the sector. Although, as we as we noted briefly earlier, when we're talking about offshore wind, it remains to see, be seen from my perspective just how much the tax equity market will be able to absorb those deals, and whether it remains only a handful of players who can really be relevant there. So, but but for sure, the offshore wind tax credits are a great example of where there's going to be, I think, some early wins from a 
um, from a sort of monetary policy perspective, if you like, within the sector. Equally, as we think about some of the other technologies we've touched on, uh, the carbon capture space, the Treasury issued its guidance on uh, utilization of the 45Q tax credit last year, um, specifically laying out the usage cases that will qualify for the credit, uh, the rates of enhanced oil recovery versus non-enhanced oil recovery type solutions, start of construction rules, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to be, I think, very helpful for the tax equity market to have just that confidence around financing those credits and giving, given the potential size and scale actually of some of those CCUS deals, it's structurally a bit of an easier credit the way it's been designed for the market to absorb than say the ITC in the case of offshore wind. So I think that's really positive. Um, and, and look, it's still really, I think, to be determined what federal tailwinds will emerge for things like battery storage and green hydrogen. There's um, there's draft legislation, I believe, currently in both houses on the battery side um, with a, degree, a good degree of bipartisan support. So we could be optimistic there, maybe on the battery side. But arguably, both of these technologies that we we're talking about in that last bucket, you know, batteries and green hydrogen, both of those will warrant some more monetary policy incubation at the federal level, even if it's indirectly through a sort of, you know, technology agnostic approach, if that makes sense. So we're in wait and see mood on that. To that point, what has happened is that Jigger Shah, the one-time founder of Sun Edison and founder of Generate Capital, was recently appointed to head the Department of Energy's loan program, currently seeing about $40 billion of capacity, if I was reading the website correctly this morning. You know, there is the specter of more federal help could be on its way, you know, towards some of these developing technologies, depending on how these loans get doled out. Yeah, uh, I I hope so. I mean, as a as a sort of general comment, I do think I do think government plays a crucial role in creating these sort of right incentive systems for the private sector to to step up its game in the energy transition. you know, I remember Bill Gates actually made this observation, right, that the, the sort of challenge with when you think about energy innovation specifically, these technologies typically have a really, really long payoff period from first inception through to mass commercialization, if you like. So, again, kind of in many ways, back to that Project Finance 101 type of comment, who's the best party to absorb multi-decade commercialization risk? It's, it's probably the federal government in the first instance rather than corporate America, right? Um you know, there are parallels there, actually, if you go back through history, if you think about Department of Defense and NASA and all the sort of historic leaps we've made through things like nuclear energy, you know, jet propulsion, global communications. So that's the kind of parallel I draw there. Um, look, I hope with Jigger's private sector and clean tech background, he'll be very well placed to help be a bridge to that type of thinking within the, in the DOE. There, there may be a challenge to not spread the program too thin across so many potential markets and technologies that we've touched on, um, where you know it could be potentially therefore ineffective and doesn't move the needle so much. But I think, you know, if, as I think about the space, a key determinant of success will be really the sort of efficiency and responsiveness of these programs. Um, you know, the clean tech sector is moving incredibly quickly these days. DOE will need to keep up with that and, and move at the same pace that the private sector is really used to moving at to be effective, I think. Are we at a point where solar plus storage projects are going to start to compete more regularly with conventional projects, or is it too early to make it a part of the regular menu, if you will? No, I don't think we're too early. Uh, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of that that's been coming through the sort of financing pipeline the past year or two, and and even more going into next year already. Um, I think we're probably there, but it's going to be market dependent. You know, the supportive market frameworks for those projects will no doubt continue to evolve. 
uh, within the various regional transmission organizations. Um, we're certainly seeing a lot more of those paired solutions, if you like, coming to the market already this year, particularly in places like Kaiso, uh, Southwest, PJM. Um, you know, interestingly, just as an aside, if I think about what happened in, in Texas a couple of weeks ago, you know, arguably having more of those kind of paired solutions with wind and storage even could have been a potential mitigant to some of those problems. So I, I certainly don't think it's too early. We're seeing a lot more deal flow coming through on that side. And, and solar and storage is one tool in the toolbox. It's not the only tool, but it's a very important tool. Let's cap it off with your favorite sector again, going back to offshore wind. There's obviously a lot of promising developments out there on the East Coast, just to name it, a handful, the Maryland Wind Project, and then these Long Island projects, Empire Wind and Beacon Wind. What other developments do you see out there as pushing the industry forward? Yeah, I mean, those ones you listed are all huge projects. I think they're going to be very well received in the market, given the experience of, of the sponsors and strength of those sponsors behind them. I think lenders... And investors who've already put sort of capital to work in that space back in Europe will clearly be on the front foot here. Um, but look, I mean, longer term and thinking about thinking about your question more thematically, you know, I believe floating wind is actually going to be really important um, as well, and, and potentially very thematic for places like the West Coast, right? If you um, if you think about some of the structural challenges there for a second, it's it's really it's really just geography. The sea shelf t- uh, topography um, is really not that suited to conventional fixed bottom installations. I think the shelf drops off thousands of feet when you only get a couple of miles offshore. So, um, so that's where floating wind comes in. Um, again, you know, Europe is a bit ahead of us here. They've they've already deployed started deploying floating wind in various um, various parts of Europe. So that could provide you know real meaningful baseload to those West Coast states with aggressive net zero targets, you know, California being the, the, the key example there, with low profiles that very nicely complement onshore solar, for example. Um, there are there are a few, actually, Department of Defense, interestingly, challenge, challenges there, um, environmental challenges uh, just to overcome in places like California. But I think we're seeing, we're seeing folks already being quite on the forefront there. Um, you know, one example would be Companies like Principal Power, who've done this back in Europe and are now are now uh, very active on the West Coast. Um, out, outside of offshore wind, I also see, you know, those potential tax incentives we talked about earlier as creating um, tailwinds for those more nascent battery and hydrogen markets. Those subsidy structures are going to really create much more of an attractive risk-adjusted return profile for investors. I think as they as they think about these spaces and how they can push these technologies further forward. So I do think back onto that monetary policy point we're talking about earlier, that's going to be crucial. Um, And look, you know, finally, more broadly, even still, I think some bigger picture thinking around things like a carbon tax or some form of federal low carbon fuel standard would be the type of moonshot governmental nudge that would really create material incentives to the private sector. So those, those are my thoughts there, John. Well, James, I feel like we could have a month to two month long series going into some of more of these issues. Absolutely. Nevertheless, I, uh, we really do appreciate the time you've given us today. And thanks for listening. And please tune in next time for another edition of the Crossroads podcast, Burkout. <laughs>